This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I am Chong Jen Sun and this is The Breakfast Grill. In the current world we live in, power, be it military, economic and geopolitic, is built on the essence of computer chips. The US has maintained its lead as a superpower due to its domination in advanced computer chips and the technology behind it. This dominance is in danger of slipping now, underpinned by the naive assumption that globalising the chip industry and allowing Taiwan and Korea to take over manufacturing of chips. In early October, the US Department of Commerce issued an update announcing a ban across the sale of high-end semiconductor chips to China. What does all this mean for the worldwide semiconductor industry? Joining us in the studio is Chris Miller, economic historian and author of the book Chips War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. The book has won the Financial Times Business Book of the Year. Thank you for joining us this morning. Chris, your book illustrates that the policymakers are starting to revert to the trend that semiconductors and the pursuit of military power are highly correlated. With your history background, can you give us an overview why we need to be conscious about history when thinking about technology and geopolitics? Well, a lot of people think about uh, semiconductors or computer chips as they're more commonly known as something that powers their smartphone or their PC. But in fact, the first chips were created for use in military systems. They were in guidance computers that uh, were devised for Cold War era missile systems in the 1950s and 1960s. And there's been a really deep historical relationship between advances in chip technology uh, and uh, geopolitics and military use cases. And so unless you understand the history of this technology and its origins in military competition, you can't understand the shape of the industry today. In early October, the U.S. Department of Commerce issued an update around the market's export controls, announcing a ban across the sale of high-end semiconductor chips to China. Concerns cited was that the technology may be used for military purposes. Was this all unexpected as Huawei was also dealt with numerous accusations over the years? Was this the main factor that drove the ban? I think if you look historically, you find that every nation that's had access to advanced computing power has deployed it for intelligence uses and for military systems. If you think back to the, some of the first computers that were used by the British during World War II to crack enemy codes, or if you look at how military systems today, from missiles to airplanes to satellites in space, rely on computing power to guide munitions toward their target or to identify uh, and track uh, uh, enemies on the battlefield, there's a really deep relationship between computing power and, uh, and military goals. And so the U.S. concluded that the previous policy of selling all of the most advanced chips to China was enabling China's growing military power. Uh, and that's what inspired the Biden administration to change its export control rules and stop selling uh, the most advanced chips for data centers uh, to to China. Chris, interestingly, your book also highlights that China was spending more money importing chips than it was spending on oil. Could you perhaps contrast the Soviets' failure in building a culture of science and precision engineering and innovation with China's attempt to build and modernize its technology and R&D base? Well, there's a, a number of uh, important similarities between the the Soviet Union, which tried to become a semiconductor superpower and failed, and China today. Both have huge reserves of scientific expertise, brilliant physicists and engineers, and lots of money going into the chip industries. You know, one key difference uh, thus far has been that where the Soviet Union was 
solely reliant on its defense industry and didn't have much of a consumer market to speak of, China is different. Uh, it's got companies that sell smartphones and sell software and sell mobile payments. And that's been a real boon to China's industry over the past couple of uh, decades because it's provided more uh, use cases to sell chips too. But over the past couple of years, as China's government has identified semiconductors as a core national security priority, the government's gotten more and more involved. And what you find is that an industry which in the past was consumer-focused in China today is more impacted than ever before by the Chinese government. And many of the leading uh, Chinese technologists who used to be in the sector have since left because they didn't want to have to deal with the heavy hand of the government and wanted to focus on more entrepreneurial considerations instead. And Chris, this brings me to the question on TSMC. You talked extensively on how TSMC came to dominate the global supply of advanced chips, but now faced with a Taiwan risk where mistakes in the Taiwan Straits couldn't be higher now. How difficult is it to strike a balance for this? Well, it's, it's a critical issue, not just for Taiwan or for China, but the entire world, because TSMC, which is one of the most impressive uh, and capable companies in the world, produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips, including most of the processors found in smartphones, many in PCs and data centers, cell phone towers. The entire world's tech ecosystem simply can't function without chips produced in Taiwan. Uh, and that makes the security situation between China and Taiwan, an issue that's not just relevant for people living on both sides of the Taiwan Straits, but for the rest of the world, too, because it's hard to find someone who doesn't touch a TSMC-produced chip every single day of their lives. And right now, uh, Taiwan is having to recalibrate its business model because for a long time, its companies didn't have to think about geopolitics. But as tension in the Taiwan Strait grows, we're finding that lots of companies are beginning to rethink their supply chains to reduce their exposure both to China but also to Taiwan. What are some of the likely scenarios if something goes terribly wrong in the Taiwan Straits and the whole world is impacted then? Well, any sort of military escalation between China and Taiwan or China and the United States would be disastrous for the world's tech sector. And it's not only the most advanced chips that Taiwan specializes in, although it does have a critical role in these types of chips. It's also uh, a whole set of lower tech chips that Taiwan has a huge amount of capacity to produce. In total, Taiwan produces over one-third of the new computing power that's added worldwide each year. And that goes into not just smartphones and PCs, but into dishwashers and automobiles and all manner of industrial goods. If chip making in Taiwan were disrupted or knocked offline, the world would face the greatest manufacturing shutdown since the Great Depression. The result would be uh, measured in the trillions of dollars. And that's why it's in the entire world's interest to find uh, ways to keep the peace in the Taiwan Strait, because everyone would be impacted, even by a relatively small scale military escalation. And the Chinese government, it has stayed largely silent over TSMC's US $40 billion plant in Arizona, but has repeatedly voiced opposition to US restrictions on its chip industry. But the Chinese media has been a bit more vocal, saying that TSMC's decision to invest in cutting-edge technology in the US showed that US was stealing from the world's most important technology in its Taiwan region. I mean, this obviously has a lot of geopolitics written all over it. And how do you expect this to play out? I think from China's perspective, uh, they're in a tough position because uh, they are very reliant on imported technology and imported chips from a number of key countries. We mentioned at the start that China spends 
as much money importing chips as it does importing oil. And it imports all of these chips because it can't produce them domestically uh, from Taiwan, from Korea, from Japan, from the U.S., from other uh, countries. Uh, China imports billions of dollars of chips a year because it can't do it at home. And so long as China remains pretty far behind in the production of the tools that are needed to manufacture chips. And right now, China is hugely dependent on importing these tools. It's in a pretty weak negotiating position. And so I think what you've found is that although China has rhetorically criticized the latest U.S. controls, it hasn't actually retaliated in any real way. And that's because it knows that it doesn't have very many good retaliation methods that would hurt the U.S. more than it would hurt China. Chris, you also mentioned in your book that the risks of mutually assured economic destruction would prevent superpowers from using their position in the chip supply chain to put pressure on each other. Can you perhaps elaborate more on this and how countries are striking a balance for this? Well, this is certainly the optimistic view and the fact that everyone would lose economically from a war in the Taiwan Straits, I think, does uh, help to keep the peace uh, in this area. But there's a risk involved that a miscalculation or a leader who's not making decisions on economic grounds decides to act otherwise and incur economic costs for the pursuit of their political goals. I I think if you look at 2022, uh, the disruption to energy supply that the Russia-Ukraine war caused is a case in point of a place where mutually assured economic destruction didn't succeed in keeping the peace. And so although there's a chance that it works, I think we shouldn't take it for granted. Uh, And that provides a lot for political leaders to do in China and Taiwan and the U.S., all around the Asia-Pacific region, to focus on finding ways to make sure that uh, the China-Taiwan disagreement doesn't turn into a military conflict. And Chris, the restrictions from the U.S., they appear very extensive. Is the Biden's administration's biggest challenge in chip diplomacy convincing its allies that it can strike a balance between security considerations and economic considerations, especially in the face of an economic recession. Yeah, this is a really tough balance for uh, the Biden administration to strike. I think they've tried to do so by crafting the regulations from last year in a way that impacted U.S. firms more than it impacted firms from allied countries like Japan or the Netherlands. So the biggest losers uh, from the regulations were U.S. And this was an effort to, I think, show that this wasn't an America first policy uh, of the type that we saw in the Trump administration, because it was actually U.S. firms that were bearing the brunt of the cost. Uh, But there's certainly going to be a lot of discussion both within the U.S. and between the U.S. and other allied countries about whether this is the right balance, um, because uh, the efforts that are underway to uh, keep the most advanced chip-making capabilities in the hands of Taiwan, the U.S., Japan, and other countries, and not in the hands of China, is going to be costly. Uh, and we've already seen supply chains beginning to shift, which is putting new costs on companies in the electronics industry. But Chris, will this play in China's favor and enable it to time enable it time to stockpile on foreign components and tools and help uh, perhaps President Xi Jinping quote, quote uh, trade partners? Well, I don't think so. China's certainly done some stockpiling and will try to do a bit more. But the reality is China is so dependent on imported machine tools, imported advanced chips, and especially imported chips from Taiwan, that stockpiling can only go so far. And the fact of the matter is that it's hard to find someone in the chip industry that thinks China's going to find an easy way around these controls. Uh, And I think China's going to be struggling to deal with the aftermath of them for at least the next couple of years. 
On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Chris Miller, economic historian and author of the book Chips War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. When we come back, we will speak to him about how China is strategizing for its future in technology and the future of tech policy for countries. BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. In the hot seat is Chris Miller, economic historian, author of the book's Chips War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Before the break, we spoke on various excerpts from his book, Touching on History, and the linkages between technology and geopolitics, the Taiwan Straits risk, and the US ban on sale of high-end semiconductor chips to China. Chris, is the impact for China-dependent players in South Korea, Japan and the Netherlands more uncertain as Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix have factories inside China and won't be able to maintain them without a US license? Well, it's, it's a complex issue for those two companies. On, on the one hand, they face the licensing issue that you referenced. On the other hand, uh, they benefit from the fact that the U.S. restrictions uh, target a Chinese firm that was just about to be entering uh, mass market uh, production of one of the types of chips that uh, Korea specializes in, NAND memory chips. And so uh, there's both pros and cons uh, for those two Korean firms from these export controls. And similarly for Taiwan, on, on the one hand, there are limitations that the U.S. controls uh, create. On the other hand, uh, their competitors in China will also be uh, really restrained by uh, the U.S. controls. And so in, in some ways, both Taiwan and Korea have some uh, reasons to be happy about the controls as well as some reasons to be concerned about them. How would a company like Apple navigate this change? It has frozen plans to buy components and high-end memory chips from China's YMTC. While I know that the chief ex- executives of Apple, which is one of TSMC's biggest customers, they were present at its new factory in Arizona with President Biden as well. Well, Apple's got one of the most complex supply chains to manage. It's Uh, Components are largely designed in the U.S., Japan, or Korea, but the most important chip in each iPhone is manufactured in Taiwan before generally being sent to China uh, for final assembly. So it really is a truly international supply chain that ends up on both sides of the uh, China-U.S. competition. I think we've seen, though, Apple take some uh, really significant and costly steps uh, to begin to reduce its reliance on final assembly in China. Today, almost all iPhones and many MacBooks and other Apple products are assembled in China. Uh, But the company is beginning to change that with more assembly in Vietnam and especially in India coming down the road. And I think the company is betting that we're going to see more tension between China and the US. And as a result, they're willing to pay more for additional assembly capacity outside of China. Companies have been making changes in their businesses to adapt to the new environment, including downsizing the workforce and cutting off unprofitable ventures. How much more cuts in capex and headcount can we really expect going forward? Well, it's been a bad couple of quarters for the chip industry, uh, but it was followed by a a real boom time in 2020 and 2021. uh, And that created some overhang of excess capacity. I think we've got one or two more quarters before we finally hit the bottom uh, with the U.S. potentially entering a recession uh, at some point. Uh, next year. But at some point, the market will turn up again, um, probably in the latter half of 2023, and we'll be back to an upcycle in most parts of the industry. Will all this expected decline in CAPEX staff off the rising digital innovation push that is taking place globally? Will this sideline next generation investments such as deep learning and 
artificial intelligence projects? It's going to have some impact. That's a good question to ask. I think the the shift more generally away from a very low interest rate environment globally to a inflationary environment with higher interest rates is going to squeeze off some funding. But for the most valuable projects, the advances in deep learning and um, and AI more generally, the value uh, is so large and the capabilities that are just being brought online now are so substantial that I think investment here is likely to persist. It's more of the uh, fringe tech uses that have much less uh, obvious value propositions that will find themselves most under pressure. Crypto is the best example of this, um, but there are others as well. I don't think you find that many people in tech who think AI is not a big deal uh, or who worry about the ability to monetize it in the long run, and that'll keep money flowing into the space. Chris, is there a likelihood that this chip ban will extend to other upstream and downstream of the semiconductor value chain? And do you expect the list of sanctioned entities to get longer? I don't expect a a big movement upstream or downstream. I think the Biden administration um, was pretty careful and deliberate in devising the list that they put out in October, uh, and they're going to stick with that list. There will undoubtedly be uh, some increased listing of uh, Chinese firms, but nothing I think uh, that would target uh, major companies. It'll be uh, the type of thing that targets uh, companies that are uh, alleged to be linked to the Chinese military and therefore are no longer or not playing a major commercial role. I think the interesting question uh, for 2023 and maybe 2024 is are there other spheres? Uh, in which the U.S. rolls out new uh, restrictions. There's discussion, for example, about biotech uh, restrictions um, potentially being down the road. That's something that we'll have to keep our eyes on. Chris, analysts have been saying that a gap between what China can produce and what it desires to achieve still exists, noting that any ban on advanced foundries made in Taiwan and Korea would hinder Beijing's digital infrastructure initiatives, such as upgrading the market's 5G connections and its ambitions relating to the Internet of Things. How do you see China strategizing for this? Well, it's a big issue. I think for uh, most Chinese firms, they won't be immediately impacted or even impacted in the medium term because the U.S. restrictions really only impact chips that are going into data centers. And so for Chinese firms that aren't hugely reliant on uh, the most advanced processing in data centers, they'll only feel a real marginal impact. And that's true for smartphone makers. That's true for uh, PC assemblers. Uh, Across much of the tech stack, there won't be a direct impact. It's really only the cutting edge, computationally intensive AI that will be impacted and the data center and cloud computing companies uh, that, that run these data centers. They're the direct impact. And for them, the challenge is going to be to try to find alternative ways of achieving advances in computing that are cost-effective and not reliant on the types of chips that are limited. Uh, That's going to be a difficult task, um, but that will uh, be what they'll have to deal with over the next couple of years because they won't be able to acquire the most advanced GPUs going forward. The U.S. has been quoting its allies, including Taiwan, Japan and South Korea, to form the Chip 4 Alliance, a move China sees as an attempt to marginalize its role in the global supply chains. How realistic and successful can an alliance like that be? You know, I think this grouping has been blown out of proportion in terms of its importance. Uh, People refer to it as an alliance, but in reality, there's, there's no real alliance behind it. There's no treaty. There's no mutual obligations that the four countries are making to each other. In reality, I think it's better to interpret it just as a a working group of officials between these four countries that are going to get together on a regular basis and try to align their policies on semiconductor incentives, on export controls, things of that nature. But 
my sense is that uh, in in many countries, the actual significance of this group has been uh, taken out of out of context, and uh, too much uh, has been focused on this relative to other aspects of the semiconductor space. Chris, the U.S. Chip Act comes amid a backdrop of weaker global growth, where rising inflation is pushing global borrowing costs higher and is further aggravated by supply chain complexities. Would it be naive to think that this ban only impacts semiconductor companies? What are some of the larger implications? Well, I think the the direct impact is really in the the chip industry, not only um, companies that manufacture semiconductors, but also the suppliers to them, the machine tool makers, for example, or the chemical um, suppliers. But in the long run, this is going to have an impact on the entire electronics supply chain because it's yet another piece of evidence that we're going to see more substantial bifurcation between the Chinese tech sector and the non-Chinese tech sector. Uh, And that is one of the reasons that companies like Apple, as we discussed, are beginning to shift their investment patterns to hedge against the risk that this continues. And I think we've seen lots of different major companies, not only U.S. companies or Chinese companies, but also Korean and Japanese, look at the evidence and draw a similar conclusion that more bifurcation is coming and therefore their investment patterns need to shift as a result. And that's going to have a major effect in the long run on the entire shape of the electronic supply chain. Chris, I know you're not an analyst, but given the US chip ban is expected to further test valuations for tech stocks, which account for nearly a fifth of regional indices exposure, which companies and countries look to be net beneficiaries from all this? Well, I I think this is an issue where there uh, might not be that many net beneficiaries. There are some countries that have uh, mixed costs and benefits from uh, these changes. I think we're going to see, we've already seen a a major shift of uh, assembly work from China to Vietnam. Uh, We're going to see India uh, over the coming years try to play a bigger role in attracting uh, electronics assembly uh, there too. But I think on the flip side, everyone is going to pay the price Uh, in terms of less efficiency in the supply chain and therefore uh, higher costs for all the electronics goods that uh, we rely on. I don't think we're going to see drastically higher costs, but costs are going to go up as efficiency declines. And that's one of the inevitable impacts of uh, this type of bifurcation. Finally, Chris, the future of tech policy will be determined by history and the balance of power. Fast forward to the end of this decade. What do you see in your crystal ball? Well, my best guess is that we'll have past the peak of concern uh, or optimism, depending on your position, of China's tech boom, uh, and that all of the predictions from uh, the last decade that Chinese tech firms were poised to um, uh, to take over global markets are, in fact, going to be seen to be uh, wildly over-optimistic. I think we're in the early stages right now of uh, still digesting the impact of uh, Xi Jinping's tech crackdown of the last couple of years. But I think the Export controls are going to be another piece of evidence that, in fact, uh, Chinese tech is not as uh, powerful or influential as it was often made out to be. And that will mean that the shape of the electronics industry, I think, will actually end up looking rather similar as it does today, with key positions being held by Japan, Taiwan, and Korea, uh, with Southeast Asia playing a major uh, role as well. So in, in some ways, the story is less changed than you might expect because China's impact over the next decade is going to be less significant than most people think it will be. On that note, thank you for your time. Today on The Breakfast Grill was Chris Miller, economic historian and author of the book Chips War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. I am Chong Jensan, BFM 89.9. 
The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.